More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to today's edition of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome in Friday edition, Clay Travis, Buck Sexton Show. Hope all of you are ready for a fabulous weekend, and thanks for spending your Friday with us. We've got a lot of topics to discuss throughout the course of the program. We'll also take a few of your calls, 800-282-2882 is the phone number here on the Friday edition of the program. Let's dive right into it. Uh, the continued fallout of what's going on in Israel with Israel preparing to enter Gaza is creating all sorts of interesting political externalities here for Joe Biden. And, uh, and today is also the Twitter one year anniversary. Ron DeSantis says Trump can't win. Do we believe it? But let's start here, Buck. I, I've got a thesis for you. I want you to tell me if you believe it or not. Trump was the glue holding together all of the Democrat Party's identity politics coalitions. They could point to Trump and say, he's the great Satan. He's everything that unites us, even though this was a disparate coalition of identities that might not have a lot in common otherwise. And I think what's going on right now, and Joe Biden is not a skilled enough politician, I don't think, to address it, is you're now seeing a massive fraying of the Democrat Identity Politic Coalition. We've mentioned that Jewish people tend to vote Democrat 65-35-70-30. This is a big advantage. But also the Rashida Tlaib, Elon Omar wing of the Palestinian caucus, kind of call it what it is, also overwhelmingly votes Democrat. And so you've got two identity coalitions colliding. There isn't the great Satan of Trump to uh, to connect them now. And there's a lot of concern that the uh, young coalition that supported Joe Biden overwhelmingly is in the Democrat Party 
actually way more receptive to Palestine. And then the Jewish coalition obviously is not receptive at all. So can he hold this identity politics coalition together in your mind? So what you have is the the apparatus of of BLM and racial politics in this country has taken in. This is why on college campuses it's it's so apparent um, has taken in the Palestinian cause as a as a racial cause. You you don't even really hear about it talked about very often in the context of a religious war. That's not yeah. that's not really what it, what the left views this as. They view it as white versus brown or white oppression of brown people. Yes. And that's that's the lens through which all of this is being seen and that has been a very potent force for Democrats on a whole range of issues, right? That is uh d- Democrats have used uh race and racial resentments and and racial strife for electoral lens. I mean, if you don't have the Democrat Party winning particularly the black vote by as much as it does in this country, but also other non-white voting blocks by the numbers that it does, the Democrat Party will never, you know, is, is not a viable political entity. So it's very important to them. But then at the senior ranks of the Democrat Party, you have, first of all, you have a number of prominent uh, Jewish leaders in the Democrat yes. Party, Chuck Schumer, and there are others. You have Joe Biden, who has a long history of supporting Israel. And so there's this, there is this, this collision of interest that is occurring here. And you see somebody like, for example, uh, here's, here's Alan Dershowitz. Did you see this? Alan yeah. Dershowitz, a prominent attorney, Jewish American. Um, here he is yelling at a bunch of, of, uh, protesters that they shouldn't be cowards hiding behind masks. Play three. They're afraid. They wear masks. They, they weep and cry. Oh, my name will be revealed. Maybe I will lose my job. Well, you ought to lose your job. Would any client want to be represented by somebody who supported rapists? Would anybody want to be represented by somebody who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan or the Nazi Party? Hamas is Ku Klux Klan. It's the Nazi Party. And if you support their terrorism, you're supporting Nazism. And you can't do it anonymously. Sorry. Come out from behind under your rock and make yourself known. And bear the consequences. Martin Luther King didn't try to hide. You're trying to hide. If you're ashamed of your views, don't express them. But don't hide. Clay, you know, it's interesting also. We saw in the Trump era the rise of the use of terms like white nationalism and white supremacy for the Republican Party and fascism altogether. That there was a a fascistic, racist, white supremacist Republican Party in this country which is a, a, a just a, the whole thing is an absurd, is an absurd slander. But it's interesting with Hamas, you have an entity. You can make a very clear case that Hamas is, as, as we've been saying all week, morally indistinguishable from in its actions and in its aims from Al Qaeda or ISIS or other jihadist entities that we know must be destroyed, not, not negotiated with, not met with good faith, destroyed. And the left thinks that that's going too far, right? Republicans, they've been saying for years, that half the country, Clay, is white, is part of a white supremacist and fascistic, even that, that there's a lot of minorities, it doesn't matter that they're part, that there are a lot of minority Republicans. They're part of something that is evil. The Republican Party, Democrats are comfortable, Democrats are comfortable saying the Republican Party is evil, and yet look at how many, how many Democrats are not comfortable saying Hamas is evil. Yeah, and I, I would even go a step further here, Buck. 
you can point to people who are defending Hamas, and they try to say, well, I'm not defending Hamas. They Some of the times they do. They say, well, this is about defending Palestine. Well, I mean, Palestine is uh, Hamas is more popular in uh, in Gaza than Joe Biden is in America. I, I think they have like a, almost a 60% approval rating. Now, I don't know how reliable polls are in, in Gaza in general, but this is effectively a political party that is representing uh, the, the Palestinian people. But you have people like Rashida Tlaib, you have people like Ilan Omar, Jamal Bowman, who will come out and say, and we'll talk about Bowman pulling the fire alarm a little bit later in the program, I'm sure, but you have them coming out and effectively giving propagandistic talking points in favor of uh, the, the the Hamas militants and, uh, and, and everyone around them. Who even makes and has any political party, uh, power at all any kind of argument in favor directly of white supremacy? Right. I mean, this this is the great fallacy of the argument that America's overrun with white supremacy. Okay, show me a that's single why, that's political why the entirety, figure. Yes. The, you know, the rest of the world and and the, the non-white population. I mean, when was the last time you saw somebody at the border, for example, crossing into the country that you would describe as as white or Caucasian? And it is it is a non-white influx of millions and millions of people. Yes. Who are Desperate to be in this country. Willing to die to get here. It would be totally unnatural to make that choice if this was a white supremacy ridden, riddled country. But there's no one with any political power who is a white supremacist. I can't even think of anyone who has publicly come out and said, uh, anything white supremacy related. And oh, by the way, we've created such a free country that do you know who is the most dominant, successful group by ethnicity in America today? Asian people. Asian people out-earn white people overwhelmingly, which is why they're now called, what are they called, Buck? White adjacent. Because if you point out that Asian people are successful, people say, well, they're kind of white adjacent. Well, uh, there's a big difference between a recent immigrant who's Asian and who suddenly can't get into Harvard because their scores are being discriminated against relative to other people. And it's all just laughably absurd. Nigerian immigrants to the United States do better than the average American household. I mean, when you, when you look at these South Asian immigrants to the United States, economically speaking, yes. make more money than the average American household. I mean, you start to break this down and you realize the whole narrative of, of, uh, of white supremacy in the country is, is, is a falsehood. Um, but beyond that, and then they say, well, it's like you're denying racism. Of course. No, the, the, there's always going to be people that are, um, going to judge people by superficial characteristics and that make the immoral decision that they're going to view people differently based upon skin color. That's always going to exist. It always has. And it they're always, always going to be representing all different races, too, by the way, which yes. is something and that's almost impossible to announce on the Democrat Party. In the rest of the world, racism is is understood to be people thinking that people who aren't their race, they're left less comfortable around, they think less of them or whatever it may be. Only in this country is racism a single a single race phenomenon, really. I mean, there are maybe yes. some other, you know, Western European countries, you can make the same argument, but I'm talking about globally. Um, it's certainly the case that there are racisms of, of non-white variety, meaning people that aren't white can actually be racist. But you look back again to the, uh, the Palestinian Israeli debate as it's, as it's playing out. And there's also just a lot of things being said that are, are, are not true. I mean, here's Rashida Tlaib yelling at reporters who are asking if she will denounce Hamas. L- listen to how she responds. Play clip two. Congresswoman, will you denounce Hamas? Yes. 
Will you denounce Hamas? Why do you support terrorists? You're dehumanizing Palestinians. No, you're you're supporting terrorists. No, you're supporting terrorists. You're supporting terrorists. Notice, Clay, if if after 9-11 I had said to somebody, will you denounce peace because 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi, you're dehumanizing Saudis. Everyone say, no, that's... I'm not dehumanizing Saudis. I'm saying people that did a thing yes. were part of an organization who are mass murdering terrorists have to be dealt with. We have to have a right to. De- Isn't it interesting? People will say Israel has a right to self defense. Then you say, okay, so you support the invasion? They say absolutely not. You say, well, then how do you, how do they have a right to defense? They they're supposed to live with the you know the sword of Damocles dangling from above the state of Israel with all these rockets and this Hamas terrorist infrastructure. It's insane. Yeah, and this is again emblematic what 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 would we just played that audio clip of biden's extreme weakness on his left flank and i think the data is going to start to show because biden won young people overwhelmingly there is going to be cornell west is already making an argument for that far left fringe and i've said buck there's three ways biden loses one way is turnout is way lower. I think we're trending towards, and we've got a stake bet, I think, on whether more mm-hmm. people will vote in 24 than voted in 20. I think we're going to trend towards less because I think Biden's not going to have the same motivating factor. Um, you could also go into Biden has some form of physical frailty uh, that just makes it impossible to vote for him, and then third party. All three of those, I think, are trending against Biden, which is why... I think Trump, if the election were today, would win. Now, Ron DeSantis, when we come back, Buck, we'll play some audio for people. Mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis said on CNN yesterday with Caitlin Collins, I believe, hey, Donald Trump can't win. We'll play you that audio. I actually disagree. I think Biden is so bad that all three of those factors are working against him, but we'll let you guys weigh in, too. Yeah, 800-282-2882. And you hear that audio, I'm sure some of you can want to be fired up, want to weigh in. Support U.S.-funded resources in oil and gas assets. Phoenix Capital Group invites you to invest in the heart of America with domestic energy corporate bonds. Phoenix Capital connects private investors like you with investments in intangible domestic energy assets. Investing in these high-yield corporate bonds can yield annual interest rates of 9 to 13% with monthly payments. Phoenix Capital Group offers various options with different rates and terms to choose from. It's a vote of confidence in the American dream. Be part of the backbone that built our nation. To learn more, download Phoenix Capital Group's free investment packet today at phxonair.com. Before making investment decisions, you should carefully consider and review all risks involved. Learn how you can diversify your investments and earn 9 to 13% APY. Download the Phoenix Capital Group's free investment packet today at phxonair.com. Clay Travis and Buck Sexton on the front lines of truth. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. 
Listen to more than a movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, second hour of play in, Buck. Thanks for being here with us. You know, the uh, airstrikes that occurred last night, I, I was getting text messages from people, and, and they're they're asking me, they're wondering what I think about the, the possibility here that there could be uh, a major uh, enhancement, uh, spreading of, of the conflict, because what happened is we struck, this was U.S. airstrikes against Iranian proxy forces in Syria. Uh, see, one one thing that's important, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the week, is to see that the uh, the Iranian terror tentacles stretch into a whole bunch of countries in the region. Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, these militia groups in Syria, uh, militia groups as well in... And, and when we say militia, it's effectively like a uh, non-state actor paramilitaries. I mean, they have very similar, in some cases, better training and munitions to what you'd get for some of the regional uh, militaries. But you have that in Syria. Uh, you obviously have Hamas and the other Palestinian terror groups getting direct aid and, and training from Iran. The Houthi militia in Yemen gets training from uh, and, and support from uh, Iran. So these are all of the different ways that Iran has to try to uh, have leverage in the region, and these are the different mechanisms that it has to, uh, well, to have terrorist attacks occur. So this is why the U.S. Uh, struck at Iran already. So we have U.S. airstrikes against, well, against Iranian proxies. It starts to get a little messy. Uh, but two facilities in eastern Syria that were used by 
uh, well, actually, this is directly against Iranian targets, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and groups it's affiliated with. Now, this is because there have been some, uh, Clay, there have been some efforts to hit U.S. personnel with rockets or with, uh, with fire in Syria and Iraq, because we still have a, a very small footprint, but we have military presence in both of those countries. So this is the U.S. sending a message here about what's, uh, what's going to be allowed and what's not in terms of U.S. personnel. This is why I've thought up to this point it's unlikely that you'll see um, Iran do anything that will bring the U.S. directly into the conflict because I think they recognize that we will make them pay um, a price, a major price here. And uh, we are getting closer and closer to the Israeli, uh, the start of this Israeli ground offensive. This, Clay, I wanted to play for a second. This is the... Hamas spokesman who was in a BBC interview and asked about Israeli civilians who were killed. Play clip six here. There was no command, no command to kill any civilians. You say this was a military operation, but the result of it was that hundreds yeah, of civilians see, were killed. Because the area is very wide and there are many people there and there was clashes and confrontation. It's no, not confrontation. No, you invaded I, I houses. Have details what happened inside, but I, I can tell you that we didn't have any intention or decision to kill the civilians. How do you justify killing people as they sleep? You know, families. How do you justify I, I killing want, hundreds I, I of want people to stop this, uh, uh, in? I want to stop this interview. The the answer, the real answer to the question, Clay, is that what Hamas did is so grotesque that the only option for a Hamas spokesman who's trying to put out the uh, the propaganda here, right, the big lie, Goebbels style, uh, the only option for him is to just bald face lie and then and and run, like actually just leave the room. I'm just be like, we didn't do the things that we obviously did. I'm out of here. That's how untenable ethically their position is. That's a little bit alarming to me. So, first of all, everybody remembers the, uh, was it Baghdad Bob, whatever they called him, the yes. Iraqi ministry spokesperson who would, you know, stand there and say, there's no Americans here. And then, you know, like they drive by and wave at him in a tank. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what happened to Baghdad Bob, but he was committed to his craft of propaganda, maybe more so and more ridiculously than almost anyone in the history of, uh, of, of foreign relations. But what did they expect, Buck, when they sat down for an interview with the BBC that they weren't going to be called out on the 1,400 innocent Israelis that got killed or the argument? They could have put out a statement. They could have put up a video of him saying it. I, I just the making your argument, then being confronted with the fact that it's not true and walking out of the interview. I'm not sure what the intent was there, even from a propaganda perspective. Well, I think it's to put out. You know, we hear this and we say, this is the most grotesque lie, what he's saying. He's trying to make it seem like it was a military operation and things happen. Now, he's yeah. saying that in advance of what will be a military operation by Israel that will take measures and go through considerable effort to limit civilian casualties. But there will be civilian casualties. In no, fact, yeah. actually, you had... um the uh Pentagon spokesman uh come out and say this i was i was actually uh, somewhat surprised to see uh, kirby 
come out and say um, on on television, look, there are going to be civilians who die here in Gaza, but this is the fault of Hamas because they have called upon them this military operation by engaging in their terror attack. But back to the Hamas spokesman here, um, this this guy, I mean, he's putting out the the lie clay because as crazy as it is, there will be people who say, see. Hamas was doing a military operation too. Yeah. And now that's insane, but that's why he's showing up and doing this because there will be people in the Middle East who will believe what they want to believe, even the most obtuse, grotesque lie. And they just want a little bit of support, a little bit of, well, there are different narratives. We need to learn more, Clay, about this. That, that kind of mentality provides some kind of uh, mental space for people to continue to act like Hamas is not just as bad as ISIS. And to your point, they'll slice and dice probably this interview up and share it on social media, which you and I were texting about before the show started today. So much, I I, I can't get past the fact that if you are under the age of 35, you basically are evenly divided 50-50 on whether the massacre of innocent Jewish people by Hamas was justified or not. And I think many of you out there who are over the age of 35, as you get older, moral clarity becomes more uh, established. I mean, 91% of that Harvard-Harris poll of people over the age of 65 said this was indefensible. So how is it such that so many people under the age of 35, Buck, I would venture, and again, I'm I'm using uh, quotation marks here, that people under the age of 35 are of higher education status than people over the age of 65. That is, far more people under the age of 35 have gone to college, have gone on and gotten degrees than they would have over the age of 65. That's the general trend lines of American life. What does it say if the more educated people are actually the least informed about what evil represents, that's scary. Well, you you look at the history of different revolutions that went bad, and there's often a component of the intellectual class turning on the society. And, I mean, this is true in the French Revolution. It's true in the uh, within the Soviet Revolution. Um, although that's even, there's other complexities to talk about there. But but oftentimes you'll have people who there'll be a core. It's not all of the intellectual class, but there'll be a core of intellectuals who somehow have convinced themselves of an ideology that is so right that everything else about right and wrong fades away entirely. And I think you've seen that at some level with the situation of um, of Hamas and Israel and what's going on right now. Uh, Newt Gingrich was was throwing some some punches on this one uh, here he is this is cut five where he's saying that this is really now infiltrated it, it's going beyond you know i had been saying there's the democrat elite or the democrat leadership and then there's the the left-wing vanguard if you will Newt is saying you know anti-semitism is really actually it has infiltrated the heart of the democrat party play five i think it's easy to underestimate the depth of the anti-israeli and anti-semitic attitudes that are now at the heart of the Democratic Party and are at the heart of the Biden administration. Supposedly a hundred people in the White House went to a meeting to deal with their anxieties about what's happening, not to deal with anger about 40 babies being killed, babies being beheaded, 
not to deal with anger about women being raped and dragged through the streets dead with people spitting on them, not to deal with anger about 1,400 innocent people being slaughtered. Oh, no, their anxieties. Uh, Newt is seeing this for what it is, Clay. I mean, what What is the the anxiety about what may happen in in Palestine? And and can I also you know point out a lot of these people that have such a this deep affinity for the Palestinians, you know, where were they during the Syrian civil war when half a million civilians were killed? You know what I mean? By by you know Muslim on Muslim violence, basically. Like where where are they during that? They're no, quiet. I, of course, because. The, I've I've long thought that, the, and we talked about this to start the show, Buck. But, but I think it's such an interesting point for everybody to contemplate. You mentioned the revolutions. Uh, what happens in almost every revolution? Eventually, the revolutionaries turn on each other, and there becomes a purity test over who are the best possible version of the revolution. And French Revolution, you mentioned, again, history nerding out here, Robespierre ends up getting guillotined, right? One of the foremost leaders of the revolution itself, as a part of the purity test, the revolution turns on itself because they ran out of nobles that they could cut their heads off, and sooner or later the lust for blood turns inward. The guy who ran the Committee for Public Safety that was ordering people to get their heads chopped off got his head chopped off. It's a tough spot to be in. It's going to happen. And we started off the show uh earlier, last hour, talking about this on some level. And I think it's worth contemplating here. How much of this is the Democrat woke revolution turning on itself? And that's really the biggest story from an American perspective of the response to this Israeli terror attack. I think it's worth contemplating. This might be the biggest legacy. And that's what's being... Starting to come out, I think. Save the date. First weekend in December. That's when the Invest Wealth Summit's taking place in Tampa. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, December 1st through 3rd. If you want to learn how to create financial freedom and security for your future, then you want to be at the Invest Wealth Summit, event organized by the team at Rad Diversified, led by co-founder CEO Dutch Mendenhall. Lot to learn there. Some great speakers on the agenda as well. Buck's going to be there. Tucker Carlson, Lisa Booth, Amy Vaughn, many others. Learn how to diversify your portfolio without relying solely on Wall Street. Explore alternative investments. Gain access to unique opportunity and hidden gems. Uncover untapped potential in real estate startups and innovative technologies. Learn how to reduce your tax burden much more. Expand your investment horizon. Secure your financial future. Get your seat at investwealthsummit.com today. Website, investwealthsummit.com. Tickets are going to sell out. Get yours now. One truth revealed after another. Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. Welcome back in. Clay Travis, Buck Sexton Show. We're going to take some of your calls. 800-282-2882. We're discussing the DeSantis argument there that he made on CNN that he doesn't think Trump can beat Biden. And I understand that because if you're running against Trump, one of your calling cards can be, I'm the guy that's going to beat Biden. I'm the gal that's going to beat Biden. Buck, I asked a question. We were just talking off the air. So I've been arguing for some time that to me, there are three pathways by which Biden loses in 24, assuming he's the nominee, which I still can't believe, but it appears that they're going to put him forward. You're going to win a stake bet on that. I think third party support, and increasingly, 
There may be a third, a fourth, a fifth party on the ballot, and I think that hurts Biden. Uh, decline in turnout. We got a stake bet. I think fewer people will vote in 24 than voted in 20. And the last one, Biden's age infirmity. There's something that occurs. So let me just ask you this. And I don't want this to happen. I don't want people out there like, oh, Clayton. No. Let's say Biden is walking off Air Force One or he's coming down the steps, uh, off of the helicopter and he catches foot catches, which is not crazy or it could be going upstairs as well. Foot catches, he falls, he breaks a wrist, he uh, breaks a foot, and he's on crutches or having to wear a sling, has a cast. Is Biden still the nominee? If that happened in the next two weeks, or would the infirmity, and the reason why I'm asking this is, I don't, I don't think this is crazy to think could happen in the next year. If you watch the way Biden can't lift his feet, the way he's tripping everything else, if we have something that is impossible to ignore, he's got a sling on, he's got some sort of yeah, yeah. cast on, he breaks a bone. Is he still the nominee? Well, I've said all along that I think that they would have Joe Biden in a wheelchair, and as long as yeah. he is still... So you think so, even if he fell down the stairs, there's video of him like falling and he breaks a bone, that they would stick with him? The, the Biden 2024 campaign is not about Joe Biden. It's about stopping Donald Trump from ending our democracy. And that will be enough for every Democrat, in my mind, who voted for Biden last time to come out again and vote for him this time. And the question then just becomes, what does it do in the six states that are in play for voters who are either persuadable or, um, you know, can be determined, uh, determine whether or not they're actually going to show up, right? Whether they're high propensity voters. So that's that's how I see it playing out. I think the answer is yes, Joe Biden will probably be the nominee. The only thing that stops it is if he literally physically cannot be. And we don't need to get into that. But that's why we have a vice president. And then they'd see if they can uh if they can have Kamala Harris. And remember there would be a whole if Joe Biden for reasons of health did have to step down, I think there'd be a lot of sympathy. Um there'd be you know, depending on what happens, I don't want to get too into this, but everyone understands what the possibilities here are. Um, and I think there would be a, a, a rally to Kamala as the vice president, the first black female president. You know, that I think they could pull this all together in a way that it's not like she's going to win or he's going to win. Neither of them are, are in the position to get any kind of a landslide. Can they just, you know, eke out a victory? And there's a lot that's going to be in play between now and then that I think could could shift. Uh, one thing we do have in our favor is at least we have one so well there's truth social there's rumble there's a few to be fair but uh twitter is no longer fully in the hands of the partisan activist left clay it is actually yes. now a pretty it's one free year speech. one full year anniversary of elon musk's purchase how do you think it's going i would give so i use twitter less increasingly so to be fair i don't um, even really tweet very much anymore I go in and I'll retweet, um, you know, uh, outkick articles, but I, I hop in, right? Like I'm not on it all day. I hop in and then just wanting to see my timeline, uh, because I do think people still come in. A lot of you out there busy at work, but you may say, Hey, I want to just kind of see what the last 24 hours, what's kind of floating around out there. Um, I would give him a B plus. Um, I, I think if I were rating it, I think there's far more freedom to say what you think 
and compared to YouTube and compared to Google and compared to uh, where the other Instagram restrictive uh, social media properties out there, TikTok, I think Twitter is more free speech laden. I think it's just not as easy to use for me and a couple of things I would change if I were given a magic wand. Yeah, the user experience has declined a little bit. I hate the two feeds thing, and there's a few things that I have uh, getting or actually rid of the blue checks. I know people said it was a, a cast system on Twitter, but you know I can't I can't make a joke to Clay on Twitter and think that he's actually going to see it and vice versa because of the way they've changed things, whereas back in yeah. the day we definitely would have been able to see it. So we miss things like that. But anyway, um, I, I think it's interesting or, or it's in the in the – context of what's happening right now with the national conversation over israel and uh and hamas and palestine and all this stuff that there are people looking at the numbers and tiktok which is the social media platform of choice i mean youtube is the you know video platform of choice for longer form stuff for for younger people but tiktok for true social media is now what the 25 and under set is using more than anything else yeah tiktok is overwhelmingly uh propaganda in favor of palestine hamas etc and i just think clay if you had twitter if the old twitter was still in place you might see an even bigger groundswell of these protests and i mean it's been big as it is but i i think that social media amplification of honestly anti-semitic stuff would be even stronger if you had had the old twitter in place because on this issue all of a sudden, there's different rules. On the issue of Israel and Palestine, the rules change for what kind of things you can say. We've seen on the college campuses. College campuses, Clay, the president of Harvard has discovered nuance yes. when it comes to what kind of free speech should be allowed. Suddenly, you're, you're, you know, it's very different. You say all lives matter, you get fired. If you say, well, Palestinians are actually the victim, people say, well, let's talk about nuance and difficulty and colonialism and, uh, the oppressive state upon which the Hamas, uh, universe has, has dwelt for so long and what the impact of their decision making would be. I, I think it's important for even older people out there to understand what their kids are getting exposed to. Um, and I, I don't post on TikTok. I have an account on TikTok because I want to see what is circulating and what is, uh, what is becoming algorithmically favored. And I, I just uh, we'll take some of your calls in this next segment, by the way. You can weigh in on a lot of different topics, start off the show. But I, I under 35s coming out in favor of Hamas, which, as you pointed out, Buck, is basically the, in, the equivalent of being like, hey, Al Qaeda is making some good points, <laughs> which yeah. is you need to take a longer look at bin Laden's philosophy before you <laughs> yeah. condemn him. That's basically what these college kids are saying. Yes. And I get the decision to rebel. But I think. For those of you out there, there's a really great deep dive, I think, that could be done and written. But the first thing that I remember going viral in a social media age that was intensely political and was was basically being established under the realm of good and evil was the Joseph Coney thing, where suddenly every 16-year-old in America cared about this, uh, this uh, what, I mean, basically like a war criminal that's in Africa, but... They managed to create a, uh, a a depiction of him as if he were the embodiment of all that is evil. And suddenly, every 16, 17, 18-year-old in America, because they were on social media, saw this on their feed, and they were convinced that 
Coney was the worst person who'd ever existed in the history of the world. And they all had deep feelings about what should be done to him because it was an emotional response ginned up by social media. Now, sometimes that can be positive, but this idea of good and evil, they are exploiting, I think, the emotions of a lot of young kids who, frankly, are ignorant about much of uh, American and world history and want to buy into this Disneyfication of the world where if you're white, you're a bad guy. And if you're a brown, yeah. you're a good guy. It's it's not even that they're doing a relativistic, oh, good and evil is really hard to understand. They're they're brainwashing people to think that Israel's the evildoer here. Yeah, that's the you know it's not just oh things are complicated. There's nuance. You know, let's let's take a step back. This needs more study. Whatever. Uh, they're fine with framing this conflict as good versus evil. They just have it in reverse. Um, and and again, this is why I make the distinction. Uh, no one, um of any you know standing or, or reputation on this issue is saying uh Israel should go in there and just just harm as many Palestinians as it can. This is a war against Hamas, a terrorist entity, the same way that Al Qaeda, the same way that ISIS, the same way that these other groups around the world that have engaged in very similar behavior under honestly similar auspices, um you know, we have no problem sending our military to go and deal with them. And that means using lethal force. That means killing them. We actually have to, we actually have to understand that, that Israel defending itself means Israel has to be able to kill Hamas operatives in, in considerable numbers involved in this attack. That is what we're talking about. I, I don't shy away from that at all. But this, this idea that there's some kind of a genocide going on in Gaza or that this is about harming all the Palestinian people, harming women and children. No, Hamas are the ones who want the genocide. They just don't have the means to do it. We'll take some of your calls to close out uh, hour number one. Lots still to come. In the meantime, our veterans have done so much for us. When you devote your life to protecting our freedoms and keep us safe, you're owed a debt of gratitude. These are men and women who raise their hands to sacrifice for this country, and when they're done serving, they reenter a difficult job market and an economy with rampant inflation. It's a tough hand to be dealt. That's why we're happy a private company like Pure Talks jumped in to help. They're encouraging you to help out, too. Switch your cell phone company to Pure Talk, get their superior service, and they'll donate a portion of alleviating $10 million in veteran debt by Veterans Day. After two weeks, they're more than halfway there. You sacrifice nothing. In fact, you'll probably be saving a fortune because Pure Talk's plans start at just 20 bucks a month, offering unlimited talk, text, more data, and a mobile hotspot. Just dial pound 250, say the keywords Clay and Buck to make the switch. Pound 250, say Clay and Buck to switch to Pure Talk today. It's the right move, and it's the American way. Need a break from politics? A little comedy to counter the craziness? So do we. The Sunday Hang. A weekend podcast to lighten things up a bit. Find it in the Clay and Buck podcast feed on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. 
Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, from this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back in, Clay Travis, Buck Sexton Show. Hope all of you are having a fantastic Friday as we roll right into the weekend. Okay, it's not who I was hoping it was going to be, Buck. I've been saying for some time that you look at the probability, you look at the analytics, somebody out there in the Democrat Party who sees how insanely unpopular Joe Biden is would make the decision to enter the race and actually challenge him. And I know Marianne Williamson's out there. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has bailed. He's now going to be running as a third-party candidate. But I thought we would get someone who would step forward and then the dam would break and there would be several other people coming. You know, this is not who I was anticipating. I don't know this guy at all. We talked about how most people are not familiar with the new Speaker of the House. Uh, I would imagine even fewer of our audience knows who Dean Phillips is. He's a Democrat from Minnesota, and he's in the House, and he has announced that he is challenging President Biden in the primary. Here is that announcement. Listen. Are you running for president? I am. I have to. I think President Biden has done a spectacular job for our country, but it's not about the past. This is an election about the future. I will not sit still. I will not be quiet in the face of numbers that are so clearly saying that we're going to be facing an emergency next November. Buck, this is not going to rattle the Biden uh, team to their core. It is a sitting Republican House member that almost no one knows who is challenging him. Is this it? In your mind, is this the only actual challenge that Joe Biden's going to get in the primary from a sitting 
Democrat office holder. I, I wouldn't even view this as a as a real challenge. This is a recognition that there is enough space in the news cycle for someone to insert themselves and create greater rate, uh, name recognition because, as we've been discussing all along, there is a an absolute certainty that you're going to have a, an open field in 2028. Meaning, if, even if Donald Trump wins, Joe Biden will not be running for president in four years. You know, after he will not be running in 2028. So you'll have an open field. And now, all of a sudden, uh, Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips is a name that slightly more people will have heard. Um, I, I think that you know he's recognizing a few things. One is uh, the weak the weak numbers that Biden has. And, and as I keep saying, I I want to feel really good about those weak numbers, but. They haven't done all the things they're going to do to try to swing them in Biden's favor. And that that apparatus is considerable. Um, but the, the numbers are certainly weak. Biden is definitely too old. There, there's also a an age battle that's playing out, not just, let's be honest, on the Democrat side, but on the Republican side of political leadership as well. We had um, Congress, I mean, uh, Senator Scott on and he said straight up he challenged Mitch McConnell and yeah. people think Mitch McConnell's too old. And, and, you know, I, I do think that enough people have seen that letting these politicians just sort of age, age out of office means that you're going to have Feinstein situations where people are truly not of sound mind, but casting votes that affect the American people anyway. Uh, and that's wrong. I mean, it's wrong. It's, it's unethical. So the age issue is something else that he's capitalizing on here. Um, because he's right. Uh, because Joe Biden is too old. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of people that will make an exception for Trump because of his vitality, vigor and focus. But as a general matter, age wise, I think he's too old to be president as well for him. We'll make an exemption or an exception. But, you know, you don't want people who are 80 running the country. Here's a a crazy stat on that, Buck. I was reading this morning. George W. Bush is throwing out the opening pitch for game one of the World Series. He used to be a partial owner of the Texas Rangers. People out there, Texas Rangers playing the Arizona Diamondbacks. George W. Bush is younger than Trump and Biden. Bill Clinton, I believe, is younger than Trump and Biden. I I mean, when you really think about how long ago it feels like Bill Clinton and George W. Bush were presidents of the United States... And they're both still younger. That's pretty wild. But, Buck, what I was expecting here is just some game theory. You're right. In 2028, and you can grab this prediction, I think there will be 20-plus Republicans and 20-plus Democrats all running for president of the United States because there's not going to be an incumbent no matter what happens and uh, based on the way things are looking right now. And that means it'll be an absolute free-for-all. Everybody's going to throw their hat in and say, why not? But the probability of you winning when there are 20 contenders is way lower than the probability is of you winning if it's you versus Biden or if it's you versus Biden and some other little-known congressperson. That's why I'm surprised that a J.B. Pritzker or Gretchen Whitmer or Gavin Newsom, Pritzker in particular, Buck, he's a billionaire. He could fund his entire campaign. I'm surprised. He doesn't need to raise money from all the rich people. I'm surprised that from a probabilistic perspective, as weak as Biden is, 
somebody didn't say now's the time to go. Um, it's, I mean, I'll go back to what my assessment has been here all along for over a year, which is that the Democrat party has a, a much more rigid and strictly enforced hierarchy internally, uh, when it comes to things like this, than than we do on the right, you know, people on the right like to get into who's the, who's the rhino fights. Democrats want power and, and the power of incumbency is, I just think so much. It's so, it's so, um, potent that they haven't been willing to really get behind anybody who would challenge Biden in a meaningful way. But a couple of fun things about this guy. Now I'm, I'm learning about, uh, about this guy, Phillips, Dean Phillips. You know that he's the heir to a Minnesota liquor fortune, but also a lot of grandson- drinking in Minnesota. Those winters are long, so that's probably yeah. a good business to be in. The grandson of Abigail Van Buren, the late advice columnist known as Dear Abby. So, so he's related to the Dear Abby. They still column. run Dear Abby, Buck. I, again, this is me being an uh, an old man newspaper reader. Dear Abby's archive columns are still regularly featured in newspapers all over the country. I think, I hope I'm, well, I don't want her to be dead, but I think she's been dead for some time. It right? said late, it said late columnist. So yeah. yes, I don't think they so meant I, that she wasn't on time. I, I, I don't want to prematurely uh, say that someone's dead, but I think she's been dead for like 10 or 15 years and they still run her columns because she basically answered every possible question that could exist under the sun. And a lot of them retain their, uh, their relevancy even 15 or 20 years later. Dean Phillips. And, and by the way, we should mention this. Maybe we should get somebody on from New Hampshire. The New Hampshire Democrat primary has turned into a mess. I don't believe Joe Biden's name is going to be on it. Have you paid attention to some of this mess? Like, because he wants South Carolina first. Yeah, they're trying to change the order. But New Hampshire is saying, no, we're not going to give up our first in the nation primary status. Still going to exist that way for Republicans, because remember, Iowa's a caucus. But I don't think Biden's name's going to be on the ballot. It will not. President Biden, this is, this is CBS News two days ago, will be the first sitting White House occupant in history not to appear on the primary ballot of his party in New Hampshire next year. The president's reelection campaign informed, this is a CBS reporting, informed New Hampshire Democrats Tuesday in a letter obtained uh, from Biden campaign officials that while he'd like to appear on the ballot, Mr. Biden is obligated as a Democrat candidate for president to comply with the delegate selection rules for the 2024 Nat- Democrat National Convention. So um, South Carolina will be the first state to hold the primary. Again, Clay, this this is them trying to say, guys, knock it off. South Carolina was Biden's, you know, firewall stronghold. Uh, you know, that was the, that was the turning point for him the last time. They're going right to South Carolina this time to be like, see, Joe still got it. Yeah. And also don't mistake what's going on here. They're saying there are too many white people in Iowa and New Hampshire. That's why the argument is they're putting South Carolina first. Now it also has the benefit of being the state that elevated Joe Biden and it also eliminates New Hampshire as a potential trip up in some ways because he can say, well, I'm not dodging it. This is just where the actual uh, primary season is starting. But remember New Hampshire and Iowa voters, the people who actually get to look you in the eye, meet you oftentimes multiple times, they Judge Joe Biden, and I think he came in, I I need to just jot this down and memorize it, but I believe he came in like fifth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire or sixth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire. I mean, he was dead in the water 
from people who actually make decisions and look and shake hands and judge face-to-face candidates on whether they're up to the job of president or not. And it all turned around very rapidly, and it turned around in South Carolina, so this is why they've changed this. But it will be interesting to see how it is handled that there will be. What this means is there's going to be a winner of the New Hampshire. There's an opportunity for somebody here, Clay. Dean Phillips has to win it, right? Is it Dean Phillips? Did I get his name wrong there? No, no, yeah, that's right. But I'm saying (laughs) someone is going to get the opportunity to, you know, if they can get on that ballot, uh, to be the winner of the New Hampshire primary for the Democrats in 2024. So, you know, I I think it is about, yeah, it's name recognition, obviously, but it's also about setting a narrative because, you know, are are people going to remember that really that you won by default? Kind of. But you get to go around saying you won the New Hampshire primary, so maybe you're a guy that should get a little bit more of a look. And if Biden were to lose, I would imagine Dean Phillips will come out and say, I was the only Democrat who told you that Biden was going to lose and that we needed a new candidate, and so this is why you should support me in 2028. I don't think it'll matter, but I'm sure that will be part of the argument. I, I, I guess they're saying now that Biden will still win because people will just, like, I guess they'll they'll write him in. Is the way this is supposed to go? I, I, we need to get somebody who's an expert on this. It's super weird and it has not gotten very much attention what they're doing in terms of rewriting the organization of, uh, of the primary calendar and even how those delegates would be alloc- uh, allocated. Cause you've got, you got Biden campaign manager here, Julie Rodriguez wrote to New Hampshire Democrats, the president looks forward to having his name on New Hampshire's general election ballot as the nominee of the Democrat party. Uh, after officially securing the nomination of the 2024 Democratic National Convention. Um, so, okay. So he'll be on, that's the general election right. though. Yeah. So they're saying like we, but remember New Hampshire is also a toss up state. I wonder if this, you know, by and large, it's one of the eight or nine states. I wonder if this is going to hurt him going forward. But then you have New Hampshire state Democrat party chairman tweeting in response. The reality is that Joe Biden will win the New Hampshire first in the nation primary in January. Win renomination in Chicago and will be reelected next November. But how is he going to, how is he going to win if he's not on the, on the ballot? Well, he's going to win the general. I, I, again, I want an expert no, in they, what's they, going on. But this on is with the it. guy saying the primary. This is the state Democrat party chairman saying he's still going to win the first in the nation primary in January. I, I don't know how they're, I don't know. Again, this is a total mess and I don't think most people have paid attention to the reconfiguration of the Democrat primary calendar that has happened. And it doesn't even make any sense to me. But it's based yeah. on the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire are too white. It's also going to be a crazy year in politics in general. So I'm not even sure this is going to be like one of the one of the biggest stories. We'll see what happens in New Hampshire. You know, over the years, how many photos have you kept and stored away somewhere? Would you wager to guess a hundred, maybe two hundred, a thousand or more? How about digitizing all those photos? Look, it's probably time, right? particularly before the coloring on those photos starts to fade, they get torn, or you just lose them somewhere. So get in touch with Legacy Box, the number one digital transfer for videos, photos, and film in the world. They've got a great new, inexpensive way for you to digitally transfer all those photos for you at a great price. Get your family's photos professionally scanned for less than $0.10 per photo and as low as $0.07, depending on how big your collection is. You can trust Legacy Box. They've worked with a million and a half families over the last decade with great facilities in Clay's home state of Tennessee. In just a few weeks' time, they'll digitize each photo by hand and ship them all back to you along with brand new digital files. It's a great service, and the result is that now you see and share all those photos again. Visit LegacyBox.com slash buck to get 200 photos scanned starting at just 19.95. 
That's LegacyBox.com slash B-U-C-K. Have fun with the guys on Sundays. The Sunday Hang Podcast. It's silly, it's goofy, it's good times. Find it in the Clay and Buck Podcast feed on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts. Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 